This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Well, this sucks. And uh, thanks for squeezing me in, dude. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, you bet, you bet. It's uh, it's funny. I I had you on my list of guys to talk to since I started the podcast, and it's been like I, I know I reached out a couple times to you, and we kind of went back and forth. But um, yeah, sorry, I, you've got my number now. So Texas Bass, my um, my uh, inbox tends to be a dumpster fire uh, pretty much every day of the week, so it's hard to keep up for sure. Yeah, I was gonna say you gave me your phone number. That might have been a mistake. I'm gonna be worse than your wife here. I'm gonna hit you up uh, all good. Cool. So, uh, you know, for my listeners, I mean, obviously, you've been on uh, tons of podcasts already, and I think everybody in BC is pretty familiar with uh, with who you are and and kind of your role, and and quite recently your new role. But uh, maybe for the people who don't know who you are, maybe you can just do, uh, you know, just tell the people who you are and uh, and kind of what your role is. Sure. Yeah. My name is Jesse Zeman. I am the executive director for the BC Wildlife Federation. Um, for the people that don't know about the BCWF, we are the largest and oldest conservation organization in British Columbia. Um, we can trace our roots back to the 1890s here. Uh, we currently have over 43,000 members and around 100 member clubs across the province. It's a lot. I didn't realize it was the history is that deep. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a really big outfit with uh, a lot of moving parts and you know dozens of different programs and um, then I would say you know the 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 big focus is definitely around the sustainability of fish, wildlife, and habitat, and then of course uh, as we're going to talk today the the public access um, to those resources. So our yeah, members yeah. are going to be conservationists, hunters, anglers, sports shooters. Uh, yeah, those type of folks. 
so you've been with these uh with the bcw uh wildlife federation for for a while now haven't you yeah yeah kind of more in a volunteer capacity my um i did my undergrad thesis on hunter recruitment and retention and did some work for the province around um factors affecting kind of um, hunter satisfaction and motivations and all those sorts of things. And then it kind of turned into a little bit more of a, of a, uh, a the role changed probably in 2014, 2015. And so, um, so yeah, so been busy dealing with all the issues. Yeah. Uh, and quite recently, um, some pretty significant issues going on, maybe, uh, you know, specifically in Region 7B, maybe, uh, obviously, you're well more educated on this issue than I am. Um, so maybe you can just let the folks know exactly what's going on here. Yeah. Start This this starts back quite a few years ago, I want to say five or six years ago, maybe more than that, actually, um, in terms of a, a court case. So um, the context um, in Canada is um, First Nations, have a constitutionally protected right to, um, you know, hunt, fish, trap, gather um, for food, social, and ceremonial purposes. So that's kind of section 35 of our federal constitution. And then provincially, um, we, we in British Columbia really don't have a lot of treaties, of modern treaties, um, that, that kind of uh, treaties kind of figure out how how First Nations um, ownership and lands and rights and title work and all the rest of that. So, so BC is way behind, uh, like 100 years behind on that. Um, but in this case, what we're going to talk about is in northeastern British Columbia in a place called the Peace Region. And it makes up about, uh, I think, over 22% of the province. So it's close to 200,000 square kilometers, really big chunk of ground. And in that area, we, have, um, we do have a treaty with Treaty 8, it's called Treaty 8. Um, so there's a number of First Nations across Northeastern British Columbia, Northern Alberta, Northern Saskatchewan, into the uh, NWT that, that signed this treaty, um, you know, well over a hundred years ago, I think it was 18. And so five years ago, um, one, of the, one of the nations, the Blueberry, um, they took the province to court um, basically, uh, because the landscape essentially has been nuked. So we have things like oil and gas exploration, forestry, um, resource roads, um, to the point where I think it's over 80% of their territory. There's a road basically within 500 meters of it. So essentially, they're, they're, the court case was essentially due to the cumulative effects of all of these things related to resource, unsustainable resource extraction. Um, they're treaty right to hunt fish and trap undisturbed had been impacted by the province and the court sided with the blueberry and basically said the province you you know you've really screwed this up you've got six months you better figure this out and get a plan and fix it and so that brings us to what we're going to be discussing today so that's kind of the underpinning and then so how we get sucked into this is Interestingly, in the court case, they talked about, you know, cumulative effects, and that was really the judge's focus. They never talked about licensed hunting in any kind of meaningful way or how it was having an impact. And so, you know, government has been in negotiations behind closed doors for months. And, um, you know, it just went out to public consultation last week. 
um, that the province is proposing to close all caribou hunting where um, this is, these are not endangered caribou we're talking about. There are endangered caribou in the region, but close sustainable caribou hunting and cut the licensed hunter harvest by 50% for moose. And so that's the big issue. Yeah. And that's pretty significant. Now, the interesting thing is um, the success rate for moose harvest in that region is well below what is sustainable for moose, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So when we add all the numbers up in terms of um, coming up with a population estimate for moose in the piece, we come up with just under 61,000 moose. So you know, a lot of moose. We have a number of places in, in the province where moose are really struggling, where we've seen some, some significant, you know, 50 to 70% declines, but that's not the case in the piece. And so, you know, when you do the math on that, um, 60,000 or 61,000 moose, you know, typically the sustainable harvest rate for moose is somewhere between five to 10%. And in a number of the management units, so that the areas where people hunt in the piece 12 of them were actually managing wolves to um, help help endangered caribou or declining caribou populations. And so in, in the normal management units, five to 10% is, you know, is a sustainable harvest. In areas where you're managing for caribou, managing wolves for caribou, the sustainable moose harvest is more like 15 to 20%. Um, you know, so, so you kind of get, you know, there's a lot of variation, but I mean, essentially what you come up with is at the end of this, you're going to say, you know, there's probably sustainably, we could probably harvest 4,800 to 7,500 moose in this region. Um, and when we look at what licensed hunters are harvesting, they're harvesting around 1,260 or 1,270 moose. So literally a fraction of what is sustainably harvested is being harvested by licensed hunters. And the province is proposing to cut that in half. Yeah. So, I mean, we're significantly lower than what is sustainable for the moose harvest. Now, if this went to, now what they're proposing is to shut caribou down altogether and they want to, they want to uh, shut the moose open season down and move it to an LEH. Do you know how many uh, LEH tags are going to apply to this region? Yeah. So, so currently uh, the piece is a bit of a, uh, you know, it's an, it's an interesting place in terms of the regulations. So maybe we should just start there. Mm -hmm. If you go up to the piece and you want to go moose hunting, currently we have this regulation that we call the soft 10. And what the soft 10 means is that when you go moose hunting up there, you can buy a tag over the counter through a general open season, but the moose has to have either two points or less on one antler, or it needs to have 10 points or more on one antler or it needs to have at least three points off of the brow palm, off of the front of the antler. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So, so that's the regulation. So right away, you know, we are just, just through that season, we're letting a whole bunch of moose, bull moose um, survive the hunting season because, you know, they can't be harvested given the regulations. And so this proposal is a 50% reduction in harvest, as you said, and it's a move to a lottery system and that lottery system would be in any bull hunt. So mm -hmm. any antler configuration would be legal. And so that means there's a huge impact on the number of hunters. Yeah. So right now, um, there's about 5,700 resident hunters a year that go hunting up in the piece. They spend around 54,000 days hunting 1,150 moose. 
And on average, it takes, it's like the days per kill is like 46 days um, to harvest a moose. So, you know, this is leaning more heavily towards people really want to go moose hunting. And if they don't just want every, they're quite okay with that. Now, when we move to limited entry, I mean, you essentially, you know, you're going to reduce the harvest by 50%, but for hunters, that means, you know, you're going to reduce the number of hunters by 75% probably. Yeah. And it means the number of days that hunters spend out moose hunting, probably going to be reduced to somewhere around 80%. Mm-hmm. So, so there's the part where we cut the harvest in half, even though the harvest is, you know, way more than sustainable, but there's the part where we cut the number of hunters back and that is going to be a huge effect. And I mean, you know, there will be ripple effects throughout the province because now you have a whole bunch more people that are going to be looking for moose hunting opportunities. So, you know, in that sense, um, everybody's odds are probably going to go up. Yeah. And two points there I want to touch on. Um, first is the economic loss. Now, uh, what are the re- do you, have you heard of what the residents up in that region are are saying about this proposal? Because I mean, I'm looking at some stats here from the um, WSSBC, and you know, um, economic loss of 14 to 16 million dollars uh, is a lot. Yeah. Now, so that graduate work is, is mostly in economics, and so I I ran all the numbers on it. The caribou hunt is worth around 470,000 a year currently for licensed resident hunters. And the moose hunt is around 18.4 million a year. Um, wow. Well, total, sorry, if you combine mm-hmm. those. So the moose hunt 17.9 million, caribou is around 500,000. You come up with 18.4 million. Um, if we close caribou, of course, I mean, that nets out to zero. And then yeah. this, this, you know, 80% reduction in days, you end up losing about $14 million a year. So you're going to go from, you know, economic expenditures of 18.4 million down to probably about 3.6 million dollars a year. Yeah, a lot. That's a big hit for uh people in that community that that rely on that income. Um mm, now, yeah. now and, and I'm I'm sure, I mean I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming that the reduction in in this moose and caribou is not only going to affect resident hunters, but I imagine it's going to affect the guide hunters as well, will it not? Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, they'll, they will have assessed the impact. And I think, you know, in their case, they're coming out of two years of COVID. So um, they probably have hunters that are, you know, they've probably got a backlog of hunters that they want to want to take out hunting. So yeah, I mean, everyone's going to feel the hit here for sure. Yeah. And now we have new regs coming out this summer. Now, now if this goes through, you know, heaven forbid it goes through, these these changes would be implemented in those new regulations right yeah yeah that's why we're getting jammed on the consultation period i mean it's it, i think it's closes on the 23rd or something you know normally yeah. you have at least a month to provide feedback and this year i mean we're not even i don't even think we're getting two weeks out of this yeah can we talk a little bit about now like like you mentioned there um you know there's going to be a lot of hunters now with no hunting opportunity in region 7b mm-hmm. Um, they're obviously still going to want to hunt. I mean, if you told me I couldn't hunt in one area, I'd be in my specific area, I'd be pretty pissed because, you know, I have a lot of, you know, I've been hunting there for a long time and I have a deep, you know, a deep emotional value to that land. And, um, I'm sure there's guys there that feel the same. Now, what kind of pressure is that going to put on region seven B and region six? 
Yeah, well, this is this is the you know, there's the immediate crisis, and then there's the part where we think about more than a week from today. And the part where we think about more than a week from today is is pretty scary because, you know, essentially the province's approach here is, you know, the way it, the way it, the way it looks is they're more than happy to trade off, you know, licensed hunting, um, in favor of resource extraction. So. You know, if 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 our community doesn't really, you know, raise their voice and and be heard on this one, then this kind of approach where we throw science in the garbage and disregard it, um, you know, if we if we go that direction, uh, we're kind of doomed, right? Because then you're sending a signal to government that hey, you know, continue nuking the landscape and then just cut our ability to go hunting and fishing and camping or whatever out. And so, you know, what you're referring to more at a localized level is, yes, there will be a shift in pressure. And yes, um, you know, essentially there's a domino effect. So this, you know, one action could have multiple reactions um, that, again, are, are not going to be good for licensed hunters. No, definitely not. Um, was there ever a time when, when our government made wildlife decisions based on wildlife? Well, there, <laughs> there are times, I mean, um, <laughs> there are times, I mean, it depends on the, right. And yeah. even when we talk about caribou here and closing caribou, not science-based, but we do have in the South piece, there's a number of endangered caribou populations that we are managing the wolf population for. But part of the process of managing wolves is you also need to manage moose. Um, because there becomes kind of a point where you've got so many moose on the landscape that, you know, either you can't shoot enough wolves to keep caribou pointed in the right direction or where, you know, other predators might be taking over in terms of, um, you know, essentially predation on calves. So species mm -hmm. like grizzly bears. So, so science on this one is out the window. Do we use science sometimes? Yes, for sure. Um, but this this one sends a really clear signal that that when it's economically or politically inconvenient, you know, science is out the window. And that is a major issue. Yeah. You know, I had to ask that question because uh, obviously, you know, I'm a resident hunter here and, and it's hard for me to to think of times or, or remember back when or, or come up with instances when the when the government actually looked at science. But I know there is science. So uh, behind some of the decisions. Um, yeah. So is there a way we can, we can, we can resolve this issue that doesn't involve closing down moose hunting? Well, it, in your that's opinion, a, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I think, you know, we have met with, with um, some of the nations up there and there are definitely concerns. I mean, you know, when we talk about 61,000 moose, that doesn't mean that that moose all over that region are doing well. That probably means that in areas that have been, you know, hammered by resource moose populations are in decline. And um, quite often it, that is also near um, some of the First Nations communities. So, uh, you know, the, the sense that I get from them is, is, you know, there are a lot of roads. They don't like seeing, you know, millions of people out there and by millions of being sarcastic, but a lot of people out, you know, whether they're working or hunting or whatever, and and there's some some sensitivities around August, like that's kind of their preferred time to hunt. So I think there's there's a lot of room to for nuance 
and to be, you know, and to be adaptive in the sense that instead of just shutting the whole region down and reducing it by 50%, there's places where we can have, um, you know, significant, like even more harvest than we did in the past for licensed hunters. And then there's probably places close to communities where we can lighten up the licensed hunter harvest so that community members, First Nation community members can get out and go hunting. Yeah. So, so, so the answer is yes, there are solutions for this and we don't need to have this course approach that the province is proposing. And I think we can do a lot better, but you know, the, the push, the wind in our sails right now is going to be from resident hunters speaking up, engaging their MLAs, you know, and, and, and right now also filling out the, the provincial website, the provincial proposal on the angling, hunting, trapping engagement website, that piece really needs to get, get done. Yeah. I wonder how many guys actually log in and sign up for that. Cause there's what, like 110,000 resident hunters in BC. Roughly, yeah. Give or yeah, take, I guess on any, any year. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a lot of people that are sending letters to their MLAs and that are requesting meetings, but there, I don't, I don't get the sense that enough people are submitting their comments to the public comment website. I think. Right. What, what would you say is more effective? I mean, for the, in this particular instant, filling out well, that you, form. You have to do it all. I mean, right. you know, in, in the world of, of advocacy, right. You know, you see change.org petitions, are at the bottom end uh, a template letter is a little bit better a personalized letter is even better a meeting with your mla is is head and shoulders above any of those other tools but yeah. the but the angling hunting trapping website i mean it takes two seconds all you have to do is say you know i'm a, i'm supportive or opposed or neutral on this regulation and here is why that's all you have to do um but that has to be part of the message that government gets, right? Because if, you know, if your MLA is an opposition MLA, hopefully they will raise it, but that doesn't, that doesn't get quote unquote counted by the government, right? Because it's yeah. not going to them. So that's yeah. why that's important. Yeah. And I just want to add too that anybody can do it. You don't have to be a resident hunter to go and, and log in to fill that out. Um, you know, uh, last night, my whole household did it. So, awesome. Uh, awesome. and there's only one you know, right now I'm, I mean, it's, it's changing here pretty soon with my son just turning 10, but right now I'm the only resident hunter in the house. So, um, but we all, we all had our say, so everybody can go out, fill out for their, for the families. Cause, uh, I'd be hard pressed to find a family that had, uh, you know, a, you know, conflicting views on, on this in, in every hunter household. So. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So, um, you know, the subject, as soon as this comes out, it, it's kind of funny. And, and, you know, I don't want to sound like the bad guy here or, or that I'm picking on anybody or I'm pointing fingers, but because uh, I'm not. But I know there's a lot of people who do, you know, right away, this stuff hits social media and um, the comments are, well, I'm, I'm sure you've seen them, um, you know, it, uh, they're taking it away from us and giving it to the Indians or the Indian, the natives, the indigenous people get to do this. And, you know, um, as always the, the resident hunters getting left out in the cold and, you know, it, it kind of, um, builds, you know, it kind of creates divide between first nations and, and, um, the resident hunters in this province. And it's really sad, um, that it does that. Maybe you can just touch on that a bit, you know, you know, where they stand and, and, 
and how much influence they're having on this. And, and it, cause it's not their fault. I mean, if we're going to blame anyone, if we're going to point fingers, we need to point it at the government. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean this, you know, um, the first Nations in that area have a treaty, right. That was signed, you know, 123 years ago. It says that they have a right to hunt fish and trap undisturbed. And quite frankly, the province has ignored treaty A on a number of issues for decades. Um, even up in the piece, you know, we have shown up with um, control burn proposals, paid for, ready to go with letters of support from First Nations, only to have them turned down by the government. So, um, so the government really is the one at fault. And as we all know, they've failed on the fish and wildlife management piece here in the province. I mean, we have all kinds of case studies um, that are showing that wildlife populations are in decline. So, you know, the, the piece around First Nations really, um, it, it's interesting because when you talk to some of the nations up there, they want grizzly bear hunting back, like licensed grizzly bear hunting. The values, when you talk about the values around the land and around moose and the future of it and what we want our kids to be able to do, they're all the exact same. So, you know, government has definitely done a poor job on reconciliation in terms of trying to bring um, First Nations and non-First Nations communities together. Um, and that's where, you know, in terms of the BC Wildlife Federation, I mean, pretty much all the projects we do now for on the ground, we do them with First Nations. Um, because there is so much in terms of overlapping values and there's synergies to be had. I think that we are far stronger together than we are apart. So, I mean, I think I haven't seen a ton of that and I, I avoid a lot of social media, but I haven't seen a ton of that blaming it on First Nations. Um, I think the real culprit in all this is the provincial government, really. I mean, we... Uh, we, we have done a, 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 an, an unbelievably poor job of taking care of fish and wildlife in this province. And, um, you know, there's a lot of cases where First Nations have um, the ability to do things, i.e. take the province to court, just like they did, that we don't. Like, we don't actually have that treaty or that treaty right. So, um, so I'm sure there are people on both sides of the spectrum, both in Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities that like to finger point, but I think we're all way better off um, thinking of each other as allies as opposed to competition. Yeah, for sure. Now, when I talk to other hunters, I mean, one common suggestion that comes up is they say, hey, what we need is we need one, one body to, to oversee or to represent hunters and wildlife specifically in British Columbia. And I mean, that's kind of the role as the BC Wildlife Federation. And, I, you know, uh, I didn't bring you here to offend you, Jesse, at any means, but there's a lot of guys who feel that, that the BC Wildlife Federation is just kind of, it's spread too thin. Do you know what I mean? So if somebody gave you all power to handle the wildlife and, you know, hunting and wildlife in, in our province, you get to come up with a structure that um, government will have to listen to, even if it's somebody in government, how, how do you think you'd come up or what do you think you'd come up with to do that? Like, do you mean around around the advocacy piece? Like, how do we advocate more? Um, how do we, yeah, how do we get things done? So what is it, what's it going to take? What is it going to take for these issues to be part of, of um, government policy? 
doesn't matter what night, not just this specific issue, but wildlife issues in general, because this isn't the first one that's come up where um, hunt, resident hunters have had issues. And, you know, a, a lot of hunters, a lot of resident hunters feel that nothing ever gets done. That's why they don't, that's why they don't partake in these sort of things. You know, you, you talk to people and they're like, well, every time I do it, it just goes through anyway. So what the hell, I'm not going to waste two minutes of my time. I mean, you know, really it's two minutes, but yeah, no, so, no, that's, that's totally fair. So, I mean, generally uh you know i don't so you know we're talking about form and function so on the advocacy piece how do you make your voice be heard and i think that's this is a big disconnect between what goes on in bc and other parts well even of canada but more so in the states is when things like this happen people get upset you know they are in talking to their legislature they are doing marches they are writing op-eds. They are talking about this. And part of that is like the BC Canada kind of approach that we don't take a hard stand on things and we don't write about it and we don't talk about it. Um, but in terms of the piece around how do we advocate more strongly, um, one of the things that we started two years ago now is called the Fish and Wildlife and Habitat Coalition, where we've taken, I, I don't even know where we're at, 27 different organizations and put them all together under one umbrella so that we can all jointly advocate um, for fish, wildlife, and habitat. And the realization around that is that even with some of these groups that may not support hunting, um, there's a whole bunch of values that overlap. So that's how we increase our influence with the provincial government. Um, I don't know if that helps answer because there's because that's kind of like the advocacy piece, but then there's a functional piece that you need established within the provincial government to actually get to on the ground activities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's more what I'm talking about is like, uh, um, how do we get, you know, what's it going to take to get um, to get somebody to get somebody inside? Like, I don't know if it's restructuring how we how the government um, handles our wildlife, like in BC, it's all kind of amalgamated into one, right? It's all, um, wildlife is with, um, land resources. And I think it, I, I was in my teens when this came about, but I remember, I think it was in the nineties when the liberal government, they, um, connected the two and made it one like super wildlife function rather than having wildlife separate from, um, land resources. Right. So, yeah, so that's the, I mean, the, the Ministry of Alphabet Soup, and they've recently just, you know, this month pulled that apart. But the, the overarching challenge, if you want to get things done on the landscape, the overarching challenge, there's a few of them, but one of the biggest ones is that forestry essentially rules the roost. And so if you look at the legislation regulation that supports forestry, only if it doesn't affect the timber supply. That's essentially what it says is, yeah, there's a whole bunch of things that are really great to have on this landscape and we will take care of them, but that's only if it doesn't affect timber supply. So that's one of your biggest hurdles to get over mm -hmm. is revisions to um, the Forest Range Practices Act and to the regulations. And so that is happening. Um, the regula regulation piece will be rolling out here in terms of public consultation. Um, so that's one of your biggest challenges. And then the way that ministry is structured is that, you know, the Ministry of Forests, it, it was Forest Lands, Natural Resource Operations, and Rural Development was the ministry. But essentially, when you look through the way it's structured, um, in the senior executive, so the deputy and ADM, typically you're going to find that those people are foresters. 
Under them, at the regional level, you're going to find the regional executive director, who's typically a forester, the director of resource management, who's typically a forester, mm -hmm. and then the person who makes decisions on the land. So if we wanted to do a burn or whatever on crown land, then that's the district manager. And again, the district manager, you know, nine times out of 10 is also a forester. So the system is fundamentally skewed towards right. forestry. So doing things for wildlife um, is, you know, it, it is, it takes a pile of effort to even get small things done. Yeah. To me, it seems like that would be a conflict of interest myself, but. Um, yeah. Well, it, it's, yeah, you got, you got to step back and look at the whole system, but the whole system really is structured to get logs into mills. That's really right. the way the system is structured. And so, the province just a few weeks ago announced a new ministry um, and it's more of a planning ministry, but they do have, you know, the big missing pieces is we have objectives for forestry. We have an annual level cut. We don't have any objectives for wildlife, right? right? We, we have never gone through the exercise to say, here's how many moose should be in this area. Here are the tools that we need to get there. Here's what we're going to do to make sure we achieve it. We, yeah. we haven't done that in BC and in a lot of other jurisdictions, they, they do that. They plan and, Quite frankly, you know, the funny thing is moose really aren't that hard to make. Like yeah, when we talk yeah. about species like caribou or sheep, mm -hmm. like there's a lot of, you know, little things that they really need to make, make, you know, make them viable. Whereas moose are really not that hard to make. And we're, you know, we're experiencing significant declines in a number of places with moose. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to keep for a whole bunch of time here because you squeeze me in but there's just a couple things that i know guys that are going to be listening to this and are gonna and, and and it comes up with resident hunters all the time and i hear it all the time yeah. um you talked about indigenous people's right to hunt and fit uh to hunt and fish now that's part of their treaty right what like as a resident hunter what rights do we have mm -hmm. so in this in the case of treaty eight it's actually a treaty right but as we said most first nations don't have treaties but in the federal constitution, section 35, they have the right to, you know, essentially hunt, fish, trap, um, gather um, for food, social, and ceremonial purposes. So that extends to all First Nations, whether you have a treaty or not. In terms of resident hunters, we have um, a piece of legislation that was introduced, I think in 2002, around the right to hunt. And it essentially says, you know, uh, as long as you have a license, you have the right to hunt, as long as you're hunting in a legal hunting season. So that so the right is a different kind of right. The the First Nations right is you know it's inherent. You're you're born with it. Whereas for resident hunters like you and I, your right comes with your hunting license. It basically mm -hmm. says that you know if you're in good standing and you buy a hunting license, you have the right to hunt. But it ends there. Yeah, well, and that's the glitch. And so when we have things like grizzly bear closures, that's that's the challenge is is when the province goes grizzly bear hunting, that affects licensed hunters. It does not affect um, First Nations. So that's, right. that's, the that's the glitch in it, right? There's, so you know, there's, yeah. yeah. How do we go about changing that? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are like, so in Alaska, they do have a, a tool which uh, essentially allows people who live, um, I mean, it's pretty much all remote, but live rurally have a have a right to essentially harvest for sustenance. So that's one that has been kicked around in BC. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the big one, you know, the, the way to trap this again is around the piece around setting objectives. 
and then laying out legislation that supports, of course, hunting and angling, uh, you know, sustainable use as a fundamental part of the way we manage wildlife and why we manage it. I think that's the missing piece. Mm-hmm. So, so you got to structure it around objectives at a landscape level, and then you got to have legislation that enables um, wildlife under that. Yeah. Okay. Cool, dude. Uh, I'm gonna let you go here, man. Just uh, like I said, I didn't. I didn't want to keep you a, a whole lot, uh, but you know, your phone's gonna be pinging here. We're gonna get you back on. So, uh, real quickly, uh, what's the best way to get your voice heard again? Uh, so you can go to the BCWF website or on our social media. Uh, we have a whole bunch of links that will get you a letter to your MLA. Um, the big one right now, until I think the 23rd, so next Wednesday, is for people to go to the Angling, Hunting, Trapping, Engagement website, which is a BCW, BC government website. You just punch in, you know, Peace Region Moose Closure and it'll pop up. We need people to fill that out. We need a big push on that one over the next week. That's the critical piece. Right. Yeah. I'm going to get this out uh, ASAP. So for those awesome. who don't know, and I, I don't really understand if anyone in BC, any hunter in BC doesn't know what's going on or, or I mean, it, obviously there is, obviously there is hunters because, you know, um, you know, like my dad, he's not on Instagram and, and Facebook and all that stuff. And he, I talked to him about these issues and he's just like, huh, what? Yeah. 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 I don't know how to log into a computer. So that ain't getting yeah. done. Right. So I do it for him, but there's a lot of people that you know, they just don't have that. So, I mean, for us to get every single hunter in BC on here is impossible because there's a lot of, there's probably, well, I I don't know the numbers, but I imagine there's probably 50, 50, if not more older hunters than there is younger hunters. So, um, and the older hunters are definitely harder to get involved into these kind of things just because, um, you know, it's never been an issue for them. Right. You know, when I talked to my dad, uh, about hunting in the seventies, um, I mean, he started taking me hunting in the eighties. I think it was like eight years old when I first went moose hunting with him, which is in like 1986, we'd go hunting for a week. There'd be five of them, three days, they'd have five moose down and they'd spend the rest of the week drinking beer. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, so Times that's how they look changed. at things. Yeah, well, exactly. So, um, they're just not involved in them, but, uh, for those who, who have the ability and, and, and want to get involved, they definitely need to get out and do that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, man. Uh, thanks, eh? Appreciate you the bet. time. Uh, it's been good talking to you, but finally, yeah. and uh, we'll talk again. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. Okay, I want to thank everyone again for tuning in to another episode of the Folk Hunting Podcast, which is coming at you as part of the Waypoint Outdoors Collective. This episode of the Focus Hunting Podcast is brought to you by Vortex Optics, the best in optics period, Backroads Maps, never get lost with Backroads Maps, and AKU Boots, you owe it to your feet. A quick shout out to Howl for Wildlife, if you guys are not familiar with Howl for Wildlife, make sure you head on over to howlforwildlife.org, become a member, it doesn't cost you anything, they've got tons of great stuff going on and uh, we're going to be working with them getting some Canadian issues put on their uh, platform. Thanks again everybody.